0: Welcome to Season 2, Leading Las Vegas, entitled Illuminating Inequities, Caring for Underserved, Vulnerable Populations Through COVID-19 and Times of Crisis. In the first days and weeks of 2020, the COVID-19 crisis unfolded rapidly. On January 9th, 2020, the World Health Organization announced the outbreak of 59 cases of a mysterious coronavirus-related phenomena in Wuhan, China. Less than a month later, on February 3rd, the President of the United States declared a public health emergency. By March 11th, the President declared COVID-19 a national emergency and the first travel bans were issued. Just a few days later, on March 7th, 2020, as the United States reported its 100 deaths from COVID-19, the President asked Congress to expedite emergency relief checks to Americans as part of an economic stimulus package. On April 28, 2020, a public opinion poll found one in seven Americans would not seek care for a dry cough or fever, symptoms of COVID-19, due to financial hardship. By the end of April, 5 million Americans had filed for unemployment. To date, 762,000 people in the United States have died from COVID.
1: In this episode of Leading Las Vegas, we examine how COVID-19 impacted our most vulnerable and underserved communities including Youth Experiencing Homelessness and the Moapa Band of Paiute. We will hear from two experts, Arash Kafori, Executive Director of Nevada Partnership for Homeless Youth, and Carlito Reyes, Hazardous Materials and Critical Infrastructure Coordinator for the Clark County Fire Department both of whom have been working on the front lines during the pandemic. With their insight, we explore how to best serve our vulnerable populations during times of crisis and beyond. Arlito Rios has served in law enforcement, fire, EMS, and emergency management for 25 years. His intrinsic drive to serve people comes from his roots in East Las Vegas. Here's Rios describing the experience.
2: Right, I grew up in East Las Vegas which was very rural at the time and um, very well integrated and slightly segregated. I saw as a child, we experienced two floods in the 80s, pretty dramatic ones, and we were impacted directly. Now, this is well before we spent a dime on regional flood control. And uh, the east side was kind of just devastated every single time. And I remember even as a kid seeing which families bounce back and which ones just really could not right or they they did and then just in time for another flood to hit so i'm biracial my father is a uh i'm a first born uh, American my father is a naturalized citizen from the philippines and experienced tons of devastation right there's uh, volcanoes erupting are a real thing tsunamis a real thing so he would he would tell me what that experience was like and you know people were just wiped off the face of the earth and never really accounted for you know, there was a modest shrine built for an entire village, but there was no family assistance group or reunification that was going on there. Right. And um, so in comparison, he was appreciative of the systems that we had in rural East Las Vegas and in what was traditionally and it remains traditionally uh, identified as an underserved community. He was appreciative of the services that we had. So it's all rel- relative
0: we also had the privilege of speaking with Arash Gafouri. Gafouri is a first-generation Persian and Nicaraguan American. He began his academic career studying international relations. His early interest was combating inequities that exist between countries, regions, and different nationalities. After obtaining a master's in economics, one of his mentors talked to him about leveraging his business and economic skill sets to assist underserved populations and the nonprofit sector he rose to the challenge and is passionate about creating new best practices to further their mission. Here's Mr. Gafori and his mentor's advice.
3: And that kind of really sparked something in me that really kind of challenged me um, to think really outside the box and to really think differently and how I can leverage all these skill sets I learned in a very different environment, in a nonprofit environment. So um, looking back, that mentor really helped uh, create the pathway that that I've been on and continue to be on in the nonprofit sector. And I couldn't imagine myself anywhere else.
1: Before we dive into how COVID-19 impacted vulnerable populations in Las Vegas, let's establish a baseline by answering the questions, who are our vulnerable and underserved populations? And what are the inequities impacting them? Underserved populations face barriers obtaining or accessing services. Language barriers, age, financial hardship, and geographic location are all examples of potential obstacles to accessing services. While this podcast examines disparities faced by youth experiencing homelessness and the Moapa Band of Paiute, it is important to recognize they are only two examples of many populations facing inequities. Mr. Reyes described underserved populations as a microcosm of society who lack representation. So I don't think
2: anybody sets out to underserve people, right, or to try to be inequitable. I think that underserved communities are born out of a lack of understanding or or an underappreciation of a of a group or a subset or a region. I also think it comes from a lack of knowledge, even from that subsection itself, right? A lot of times subsects don't even know how to be represented. So I, I think it's generally born out of a lack of underrepresentation from that subsector and also the, the larger society that, is, uh, that has a governance responsibility for them. And I think that the information is, is the key, power is the key in communication, just like everything. I, I, I think very rarely is the underservice intentional.
0: As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, a public opinion poll found that one out of seven Americans said they would not seek testing for COVID symptoms due to financial hardship. Mr. Gaffori explains barriers youth experience homelessness face in accessing health care and how inequities can compound.
3: Inequities can be very different and defined very differently depending on what you're talking about, depending on whether you know it's a population, whether it's inequity in health access, whether it's inequity because of, you know, being BIPOC, you know, black, indigenous, or a person of color. There's a lot of different ways that we can look at inequities. Um, so what I look at for uh, inequities in the population I serve, um, you know, young people experiencing homelessness in our community, it's really that. Young, certain young people, unfortunately, are dealt a bad hand early in life through no fault of their own. And this creates inequities between them and other peers that may be housed or may have access to education, may have access to healthcare. And of course, when certain populations are marginalized or experience inequities, those negative outcomes associated with those inequities exacerbate quickly. So for example, Young people experiencing homelessness are more prone to having medical issues or having negative health risk factors associated with being on the streets, et cetera. Those things compound. But it's not just that inequity. It's an inequity of how different parts of our populations also have um, different types of access to healthcare. Some have more, some have less, some can afford it, some cannot. So there's a lot of different ways that, that we can look at inequities. And I think that depending on the lens of of who you are and what you're looking at, your your definition and how you see inequity may be different than someone else.
1: As the pandemic continued through twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. Households across the nation faced challenges with finances, jobs, health care, housing, transportation, caregiving, and well-being. Surveys reported that 8 in 10 Americans said their lives had been greatly disrupted due to coronavirus. These results were evenly distributed across age, education, and income. Most states issued stay-at-home orders as well as businesses and school closures. While physical or social distancing is one of the best ways to stop or slow the spread of COVID-19, isolation took a toll on the nation's mental health as well. In our interviews with Mr. Gofori and Mr. Reyes, they both discussed how COVID-19 disrupted built-in resiliency or safety nets within both communities of the Moapa Band of Paiute and youth experiencing homelessness. While many of us missed close connections with friends and family, schools and businesses being closed meant youth experiencing homelessness lost access to Wi-Fi and even just a place to wash their hands. Mr. Gafoury explains the impact Act of closures on youth experiencing homelessness.
3: So young people are newer to experiencing homelessness in our community at a time when social services were shuttered, at a time when schools closed. When young people are experiencing homelessness, they have a couple lifelines. One is school. Believe it or not, for those that are lucky enough to be enrolled in school, there's free reduced lunch. There's a place to go and be. And uh, also for street youth or youth even after school when I have nowhere to go, what to do, going to McDonald's, places like, you know, parks and recs uh, uh, locations, you know, um, terminals, other areas that can access free Wi-Fi or they can, you know, go to the bathroom real quick, whatever those is. A lot of those were shuttered or closed. If you remember, McDonald's is doing takeout only. They closed all their, their, their restaurants except for drive through and schools were closed. So all those free reduced lunches were gone. All that access to, to Google or access to teachers, access to peers, access to counselor, all that were gone. So for a young person who's just newer to experience a homelessness, The world was much more closed off than it was before COVID started in a very negatively impactful way for young people. Also other young people. Also when young people are experiencing homelessness, you know, they tend to couch surf. They may go sleep over at their friend's house or another friend's house, you know, as a form of hiding their homelessness, but still surviving it. Right. So the parents that are, you know, hosting this sleepover may not realize that Johnny or Susie is experiencing homelessness. They just think it's a you know, normal sleepover, whatever the case may be. So young people, were their abilities to survive were, were significantly limited in these situations.
0: While school and business closures drastically disrupted the lives of youth experiencing homelessness, Carlito Reyes spoke with us about how travel bans and quarantine policies disrupted the Moapa ban of Paiutes.
2: The resilience was built in. Because people took care of people. Neighbors took care of neighbors. But now you're telling me I can only go to the grocery store twice a week. And I have so much room in my car. And I only have so many funds available on Tuesday and Saturday that I can only buy for myself. And also, we saw it here. I mean, everybody hoarded the toilet paper and water the first day. So how, how philanthropic can you be now, right? Like, I need water and toilet paper for myself. I can't take care of Mrs. Jones down the street. Who doesn't drive right so i think almost some of the policy hindered um the that was already in in place or we also saw a lot of members who were on the reservation decided to go to their second home or to rent or lease property off the reservation because they didn't want to be they didn't want to uphold those those additional restrictions that the tribal council was putting on them uh, so that was interesting very interesting and and now my neighbor who now the neighbor who takes care of my mom usually has gone to St. George and rented a, an apartment for the foreseeable future until COVID goes away. And I relied on them to, to feed my, my mom and, and her cat and her dog. So, some, like I said, some of that resilience that was in place was uh, eliminated because of the policies that were implemented.
1: So far in this podcast, we've defined underserved populations and examined how COVID-19 disrupted resiliency among youth experiencing homelessness and the Moapa Band of Paiute. Throughout the pandemic, leaders faced challenges, relaying timely, relevant, and scientifically accurate information while remaining empathetic. Successful management of a crisis is critical for gaining public support, trust, and specific to COVID-19 compliance with health and safety recommendations. Mr. Reyes shared his thoughts on compassionate and service-oriented leadership.
2: I truly believe that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If you cannot do that, they will not. what you're saying. I I also believe once you do that, I know that we, we in emergency management understand that if you give people credible, timely, reputable information that they will perceive to increase their chance of quality of life or life safety, that they will follow it. Right. But you have to be credible first. And in order to be credible, people have to believe that you care. Then they don't even really care how much, you know, I think that's more important that they know that you care than it is for them to believe that you know, a bunch of stuff, right? I believe that the inverting the organizational chart, right? It's not like if you're at that if you're the top block of the incident commander or the commanding general or the commanding officer or the the director all that those people exist to serve you. I think that is completely inverted and then if you're the president of the university or the the general of an army division, you exist to serve all of those people that that are under you. Um, I, I tried to do that regularly. I physically turn, I always ask for, uh, I've, I've changed jobs a few times in case you haven't heard John B. And the first thing I asked for is the organizational chart. And it's not to see who works for me or who I work for. It's to see who serves me and who I'm supposed to be serving.
0: Mr. Gafori expanded on leadership styles, the necessity of adaptability and understanding various roles within an organization.
3: I don't have one style. I think it's really important for a leader to be adaptive to the situation, to the population, to who they're talking to, to who their clients are, to who stakeholders are. You have to be really sort of adaptive and be able to pivot to certain situations and use different leadership skills at different times. And um, I think another way i describe my leadership was uh, kind of like boots on the ground very participative leadership style. So I don't believe sitting somewhere and calling the shots, although that's very effective for some people. I think that uh, one needs to be in the trenches once in a while, once to be humbled by what they're doing, One's, uh to be reminded what they're doing, and two, to show that in order to be successful working at a nonprofit or working in, in, in whatever you're doing, that there can be nothing that's above or beneath you. And there's nothing that you should walk by because that's someone else's job or something. And I think a leader's job is to understand what other people are supposed to be doing, understand the limitations they have, try to help with those things, but also be on the ground as much as possible so you can actually see the challenges.
1: As we've mentioned throughout this podcast... The entire nation faced challenges due to the COVID-19 crisis. However, underserved populations faced compounded disparities. For example, as previously mentioned, Las Vegas youth experiencing homelessness lost access to free and reduced lunches when schools closed. Mr. Gaffori elaborates on challenges faced by youth experiencing homelessness including the absence of parental consent for minors, limited experience of independence, and enhanced feelings of isolation.
3: What we noticed is a huge barrier, which is that a lot of medical organizations, you know, places that were doing tests and eventually vaccines, when it became a minor experiencing homelessness and they couldn't get someone to sign as parent, a legal guardian, it became very iffy if a young person could even get tested for COVID. And this became a huge problem because there's huge risks there if you're not testing a younger population around COVID for themselves, for others, for transmission into shelters that could shut down shelters and entire systems designed to serve them. So this is a really, really big barrier. So when young people are in the streets, it is not the same as being an adult experiencing homelessness that knew what independence was like. These young people have never experienced independence, they've never had to try to take care of themselves, and they haven't had the opportunity to learn how to even do that. And their natural support systems all went away because they're experiencing homelessness. This creates an environment that when a young person is newer to experience a homelessness, they don't know where to go and what to do. So back to what I was saying earlier, when COVID shut down a lot of things in our community, We, as an organization, couldn't go do outreach in schools, couldn't go do outreach in many of the same places that young people were. And young people were not going to those places anymore because they knew they could not get access to what they needed there. Therefore, it became much harder to find these young people and connect them to services. We thought that when COVID hit, uh, um, youth emergency shelters would be flooded with demand. That wasn't necessarily the case. They didn't want to go into shelter and be segregated or, or you know, be told that they have to live in a bubble because they already live in a bubble. They're already in, in situations where they already feel disconnected from everything. And COVID was all about bunkering down and separating yourself from everyone and staying put. Well, these young people, unfortunately, experienced that by default. So we had to talk to them. To figure out that, you know, they were scared about the idea of going to emergency shelter during these times. They were scared. Some were scared because they didn't want all this invasiveness. Some were scared because they didn't want to get COVID.
0: The Moapa Band of Paiute also faced challenges unique to their culture and community. Carlito Reyes explained some of the challenges he met while serving the Moapa Band of Paiute during the COVID-19 health crisis, including high-risk populations and distrust.
2: The reason why I accepted it was this they told me they had about six elders that were still fluent in their native tongue. And, and, and those elders, uh, had already pre existing medical conditions and were highly susceptible to, to COVID-19. And if they perished an entire culture would perish with them because much of their spoken word had not been captured in writing. M- much of their stories had not been captured. Their stories were still going and that wasn't being captured, let alone um, their, their early days. And I thought that would be an absolute travesty unequivocally throughout this underserved community's history of existence. And their, at, at least their interaction with the federal government has caused a lack of trust, right? Misinformation and like gross, gross human rights violations. I think that the decision to go with the federal support system was born out of their need to protect and preserve their, their parity with the state. Right. So they view themselves as peers of the state and that the next level of government uh, that they would ask for help or coordination or permission, most importantly from would be the, would be the federal government. Right. So you, you can't be a peer and ask for that peer to take care of you. Because there's real consequences for that, right? Business, legal, governance issues that go along with that. Some real and some perceived. But if you accept accept that help and the stipulations that come along with that help and the oversight that come along with that help, they view that as a, a slippery slope. It's a legitimate argument, right?
1: Distrust, fear, isolation, high-risk populations. These are feelings and challenges universal to the COVID-19 crisis, which were also reflected in vulnerable populations as a microcosm of society. So, how can we best serve our vulnerable populations? We asked both Gafuri and Reos, and their answers were nearly identical. We need to examine our own biases, engage with empathy, and most importantly, We need to listen. Mr. Gaffori explained his goals when engaging stakeholders and stressed the importance of emphasizing the impact not serving vulnerable populations could have on society
3: the issue of youth homelessness really transcends a lot of socioeconomic kind of statistics and factors. So this is not just a in someone else's backyard issue. This is not just a certain zip codes in our community type of issue. This is not a certain color of your skin, you know, type of issue. The issue of youth homelessness affects all sectors of society. I've seen, you know, children of judges and celebrities in my shelters alongside children who were born into generational poverty. That is because some of the reasons why young people become homeless transcend those things. Domestic violence, breakdowns at home do not just occur because you don't have enough money. So we want to try to resonate with people that that think this could never happen to my child. Yet there are upper middle-class children being sex trafficked that are experiencing homelessness in our community today. So you may not resonate with some elements of, of a mission or an underserved population, but you can maybe resonate with what the outcomes would be if something wasn't done for that population. That's why it's really important at MPHY, you know, as much as we tell stories so people can 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 understand the plight and the reality of young people, we also work with UNLV and other organizations to pump out economics papers, statistical papers, research and academic degrees, which show what the negative or positive impact would be of having a better intervention around young people, or conversely, not having an intervention, this is what's going to happen. Loss of civic engagement, loss of productivity in society, loss of your tax base, loss of diversified tax revenue, loss of an ability to hire a quality workforce in 10 years when the majority of your workforce retires.
0: As leaders, we know that listening to stakeholders is critical for developing and maintaining positive relationships. Establishing positive relationships before a crisis is a necessary tool for surviving a crisis. Mr. Gaffori explains the need to listen to youth experiencing homelessness as opposed to making assumptions about what is best for them.
3: There's a concept in youth homelessness. It's called adultism, where we as adults think that we know everything that's going to help our population and that we should say, oh, this is going to help Susie. This is going to help young people. But then we go talk to young people. go, Oh, I hate that. That's horrible they really have to think outside the box to survive and put themselves in situations that you and I can't even imagine. So I don't want to talk about creative and innovative ways. Cause quite frankly, uh, yeah. Someone like us may think, Oh, that's creative, but uh, a homeless young person may not. That's not creative. That's me. Surviving. That's me having to deal with this quite frankly, horrible situation I'm in. So it's not creative. It's not innovative. But other things, we need to engage our target population. We need to work with the people that we're serving, the ones that are most impacted and understand what they're thinking, what they define as help, and what they define as things that they actually need or tools that will help them in this moment. If you are not listening to the voice of those that are impacted the most, or those that you're trying to affect positive change for, you are still doing a disservice.
1: Mr. Rios echoes the need to understand our most vulnerable populations, as well as our implicit and unconscious biases. We need to embrace cultural diversity and accept cultural differences.
2: Well, the, you know, the old adage, we're only as strong as our weakest link. I like to adapt that a little bit and just say that we're as strong as our most vulnerable link. And we have to find the root cause of what that, why that vulnerability exists. Is it a lack of connection, a lack of information, is it a, a lack of uh, the ability to integrate help? But I really do believe that first we have to understand our, our cultural biases, right? Our unconscious biases, Because we always think that the way that we do things is the only way and it's the right way. And you can't care until you accept your biases and then accept that there is maybe a different way to do life.
0: As this podcast draws to an end, we hope you have been inspired to practice listening to our vulnerable populations and find solutions to create an equitable society. Attending to our underserved communities will benefit society at large by increasing civic engagement, preserving culture, and building a diverse and sustainable workforce. A special thank you to our interviews, Arash Kafouri and Carlito Reyes for sharing their wisdom and expertise. We hope this podcast has helped you understand the opportunities for learning and renewal the COVID-19 crisis has presented. This podcast was produced by John Backendall, Lois Cumming, Peter Mercado, Iona Tana, Tutasi and Kate Warden as part of Emergency and Crisis Management Master's Program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Sound Engineering was provided by Kevin Kroll. A special thank you to our professor and executive producer, Dr. Joel Lieberman. Thank you for listening.